Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, it is truly when we stop and think about it, it, it's an overwhelming salvation that we, we have in you by your faithful power in Christ our Lord. By the effectual power and goodness of your spirit, Father, I'm not sure that we are, are, are fully able to grasp the glory that is bound up in this marvelous work that you've accomplished. And we pray that you would forgive us for our superficiality, for our carelessness, for the trivial way that we so often view and exult in and live out this great salvation. Father, you have raised us up in Christ, seated us in the heavenly places in him, caused us to inhabit a whole new realm of existence. And again, these are things that we, we struggle to get our heads and our hearts around. But I pray that you would meet us in this time. Father, I pray that you would help us to see what we struggle to see. That you would convict us, but that you would also encourage us. Give us hearts of zeal, hearts of courage, hearts of conviction and commitment. The same heart that led Paul to consecrate his days, his thoughts, his prayers, his efforts to see the Lordship of Christ proclaimed, to see the alienated world come to know him, to embrace him, to be transformed by him, to truly be a messenger of your new covenant, and to labor to see men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, become part 
of that covenant family that has Christ as the head. So, Father, teach us not for the sake of just our understanding, but for the sake of our transformation. And as Nathan prayed, may we prove faithful to this high calling. The calling and the privilege to together grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. So help me, Father, and help the hearers here. Give us all ears to hear, minds to discern. And even in this time, we pray that it would contribute to your design and determination in Christ to transform us by the renewing of our minds. So meet us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we return to Hebrews this morning, and after three weeks away, um, I hope if you didn't listen to the the previous message in which I, I kind of introduced this topic of a superior covenant associated with a superior priest and priesthood, uh, please go back and listen to that because this continues to build on itself. And I know after three weeks, it's easy for us to forget even if we were here and did listen. Um, so again, we're, we're jumping right in where we left off. And, and as much as it's hard to be gone out of it for three weeks, um, God, God's providence led us to that point. Uh, but I want us to hit the floor running as we continue with this. Again, recall that we've spent a lot of time, the writer spent a lot of time discussing and developing this uh, idea and, and the reality of Jesus' priesthood as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as the ultimate king priest. And he's given so much time and attention, uh, effort to developing that out, not just for its own sake, but ultimately for the sake of correlating that priesthood with this covenant associated with it. Recall again, the writer said in chapter 7 that where there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change of Torah or covenant in context is what he's talking about. And so the shift from the Levitical priesthood to a priesthood of an entirely different order. And remember, he made much of the fact that Jesus could not be a priest according to the former order, uh, if for no other reason than because he was of the wrong line of descent. He was not of the tribe of Levi. So there's a, a, a complete discontinuity at that point. Not that there's no relationship between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood that Jesus holds. There's obviously a, a correlation there. But there's also an, an absolute disconnect as well, at least in that sense. Uh, the one cannot overlap into the other. The one cannot overlap into the other. But again, his goal in all of that was to ultimately get to this issue of the covenant associated with Jesus' priesthood. And the point is that the ways in which 
Jesus' priesthood surpasses, excels, transcends, is differentiated from the Levitical priesthood associated with Aaron, those differences are key to understanding the distinctions between the covenant that he calls the new covenant associated with Jesus and the covenant uh, that was associated with the Levitical priesthood, the law of Moses, the covenant at Sinai. And he's shown us how he says that that covenant, in terms of drawing a distinction initially, he says that the former covenant also was grounded in promises, and that's what we discussed at length the last time. The new covenant is based in better promises, enacted upon better promises, and we considered the nature of those better promises. But the heart of that, just to take us back to where I concluded last time, the heart of the betterness of this new covenant and the promises associated with it is that what God promises in the new covenant is the realization of what had been promised beginning really in Genesis 3, but through the whole of the salvation history leading up to and including the covenant at Sinai. The covenant at Sinai was based in the promises made to Abraham, which themselves look back to the promises associated with Noah and the renewal after the flood and all the way back ultimately to Genesis 3 and the promise of a triumphal seed. But the better promises are that God will, in fact, bring to realization that which all of these other covenant definitions and, and their, their role in the salvation history spoke to. And the essence of that with regard to Jesus' priesthood is that Jesus' priesthood embodies the substance of God's all-encompassing purpose for his creation which has its focal point in the human creature, man, the image, son, created to be priest, king, over the works of God's hands. And I've made much of this throughout because the writer makes much of it, though we tend to miss it. The fact that Jesus' exaltation, enthronement, to become a priest, an enthroned high priest, is precisely as consummate man, Jesus is the beginning of this new, regal, priestly, human race that God intended from the beginning. That's the essence of how his priesthood is better than the former priesthood. It's not just that it's effectual in dealing with sin or, or it's everlasting or it's tied to one person instead of a, a whole class of priestly individuals. It's, all of those things are true, but it's ultimately because of what it represents. As I said, in Jesus' priesthood, we see the substance of God's purpose for his creation centered in man himself. And that difference between the former priesthood and Jesus' priesthood helps to give us insight into, again, the distinction between this covenant based in, founded upon, enacted upon better promises. Well, I'm going to go back and read in chapter 8 here, beginning at verse 1, just to again set this context for us. But uh, before I do, today, rather than actually getting into the content 
of this prophecy from Jeremiah that uh, the writer cites, I want to set a background for that. We, we dealt with the writer's own introduction to his citation from Jeremiah, but now I want us to jump into uh, the historical, the salvation historical, even the prophetic context in which that prophecy comes. And, and there's an important reason for that. Next time, then, Lord willing, we'll actually look at the content of that prophecy in Jeremiah 31. But the writer says in 8.1, now the main point in what has been said, all of what I've been telling you about the priesthood of Jesus is this, we have such a high priest, the kind that I have just unfolded to you, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, hence it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Now, if he were on the earth, Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. He's of the wrong tribe. Those who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For the Lord said, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For finding fault with them, the sons of Israel, the covenant offspring, he says, Behold, days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant at Sinai. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. From that point forward, I will put my laws into their minds, Torah, into their minds. And I will write Torah on their hearts and I will be their God. They will be my people. Abrahamic language. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So again, this new covenant was the writer's goal in his argumentation about the priesthood. And what's important with that is that the two are intimately related. It's not just that uh, um, priesthood had a covenant associated with it, this one has one associated with it. But the way in which they're related is important. As I said, the priesthood and the covenant correlated very tightly in the way in which Jesus' priesthood differs from and transcends the former priesthood gives us insight into how this covenant associated with him surpasses, transcends, excels the one associated with the Levitical priesthood. 
So it's critical that we understand this covenant and the nature, the scope, the form and dimensions, the aspects of its newness. How we understand this new covenant necessarily drives the way we understand Christ's work. And hopefully this will become more clear as I open this up a little bit. But there's kind of the starting point. There's the initial takeaway. What we understand about this new covenant and the way it relates to Israel's covenant is critical in driving out what we understand about Jesus' work itself. Because the covenant is founded on that priestly ministration. Now, I don't know if we often think that. There's all kinds of different views associated with the two primary systems that we have all known, theological systems, dispensationalism and covenant theology. And this isn't intended to be a systematic theology course. That's not the point. But those two systems, and with variations within them, have a certain fundamental understanding of this idea of the new covenant. And my point is that those views drive out and are inextricable from, inseparable from, a view of Christ's work, what it represents, what it's accomplished. So the two go very tightly together. It's not an arbitrary, secondary thing to say, oh, what I believe about the new covenant is totally separate from what I understand uh, by Christ's work. It's nature, it's scope, it's effect, it's goal. The two go necessarily together. Just very quickly in kind of a summary way, and again, this is not exhaustive. Uh, Somebody could come and say, well, you didn't quite capture all the nuances of that, And, and that's true. It's not my intent to capture all the nuances. But in general terms, you'll recognize if you're familiar with these two theological systems, dispensationalism has tended to view the new covenant in one of three different ways. The first is that it is God's covenant with Israel, again, tied to the, this, uh, the way it's even presented in here, but as a citation from Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the first view among dispensationalists and most American evangelicals, unless they come out of, out of a Reformed tradition, are dispensational, whether they know the, the terminology or whatever. But the first view is that the new covenant is a covenant that God has um, ordained for the people of Israel. It is a covenant that is to be enacted in the future millennial kingdom where God fulfills his promises to Israel concerning their own relationship with him. Land, seed, blessing. And in that sense, it's an entirely future reality. It's a covenant with Israel that is to be enacted in the future millennial kingdom. That's one view. That's perhaps the oldest view, associated often with what we call classical dispensationalism. 
The second is that, again, it is God's covenant for Israel, but it has a preliminary relevance for the church, the largely Gentile church in this age. So it really, its primary referent is the people of Israel, and it will be realized for them in relation to them in the future millennial kingdom, but it has some sort of relevance for the church in this age. Uh, I've heard one pastor put it as the church is in a sense kind of riding on the coattails of this covenant that is to be enacted in the millennial kingdom. The third view is that there are actually two new covenants. That the one that is given in Jeremiah is for Israel. The new covenant, as the writer of Hebrews is dealing with it, is is a separate new covenant, a distinct new covenant for the church. Those are the three common views, and there are nuances, but dispensationalists will tend to hold one of those three views. Well, the underlying premise behind that, behind those views, is that the new covenant as given in Jeremiah, as I said, pertains to Israel and Judah. And that premise, which the text says, a new covenant with Israel and Judah, the premise behind that is the distinction the significant distinction between Israel, the Jewish people, and the church. All dispensationalists, if you say, if you boil dispensationalism down, what's the one thing that they all agree upon? That would be the one thing, a distinction between Israel and the church. Whether it's seen as two separate redemptive programs entirely, Early dispensationalism tended to think in terms of a heavenly people and an earthly people. Israel was to be the earthly people of God. The church was to be the heavenly people of God. And a lot of these things have softened and modified uh, over the 150 years or so that dispensationalism has been developing. But the one thing that has been retained is a distinction between the church and Israel. Covenant theology, the other primary system that, again, whether we're, we know it or not, that is a part of our culture and that we're familiar with, or whether we associate with Reformed theology, sees the new covenant as the post-advent, post-Christ event, expression of, administration of, the one covenant of grace. Reformed theology thinks in terms of theological covenants with biblical covenants as subsets of them. And what I mean by that is there are three covenants that are at the heart of Reformed theology. A covenant of redemption, which is viewed as an eternal covenant within the Godhead, pertaining the roles of Father, Son, and Spirit in this work of redemption. An eternal covenant. The first creational or, or time-space covenant is the covenant of work, sometimes called a creation covenant. 
said to be a covenant between God and Adam that established a standard and a criterion of righteousness that if Adam would have complied with that perfectly, he would have been sealed in his righteousness and man would have obtained the eternal life for which God ordained man. Man failed the covenant of works and post-covenant of works, post-fall, comes this thing called the covenant of grace. And all of the biblical covenants, all of the covenants that we see called covenants in the scripture are administrations of that one covenant of grace. So it's usually associated most tightly with the covenant with Abraham for understandable reasons. But Sinai was an administration of that one covenant of grace just as the New Covenant is a post-Advent administration of that same covenant of grace. Now, I don't want to go into a lot of depth with all of this. There's explanations for this, and there's a lot that can be said. But that's the fundamental premise that covenant theology brings to this equation. So in practice, at least the newness associated with the new covenant is an effect on the Sinai covenant. They're both administrations of the same covenant. But in practice, what the new covenant looks like in terms of, okay, well, what does this mean for us in our practice? It looks like a, uh, uh, I won't say an alteration, but but a, an effect upon the covenant of grace with Israel as it manifested itself in the Sinai covenant. Usually summarized in this way, the fulfillment of the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, the covenant with Israel is usually viewed in Reformed theology in terms of three dimensions, civil, ceremonial, and moral three dimensions of the law of Moses. And post-Christ, the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled and therefore passed away. The civil laws, the judicial laws, the laws that governed Israel as a society, they've been fulfilled. They've also, therefore, not relevant. The dimension that, that continues on And its fulfillment looks like a liberation, purification, reaffirmation is moral law. The Westminster Confession says that is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So the marrow of the Israelite covenant is said to be the Ten Commandments. And what has happened, the new administration of the one covenant of grace sees the fulfillment of the ceremonial and civil shadows, the judicial laws, and a purging of the distortions and the corruptions of the moral law and the reaffirmation of the binding nature of the moral law as God's eternal standard for human beings, eternal, unchanging moral law. 
So the essence of the covenant, and also by definition, the definition of the covenant members remain unchanged. You see this often in the reference to Israel as the church. You see that in Puritan writings. You see it in traditional Reformed theology. You see the definition of the church being taken from the definition of Israel as the people of God because of the continuity of the covenant. See, there's reasons for this. It's not just pulled out of thin air. There are reasons for these kinds of ideas. But again, what is the, if it's the one covenant of grace, the new covenant is just another administration of that same covenant. As Sinai was an administration of that same covenant. Well, what's the essential sameness then between the the Sinai covenant, the law of Moses, and the new covenant? Well, Two fundamental things are, number one, the covenant is essentially the same with the moral law at the center of it. The governance of the moral law is is a continuity issue. It's central to that one covenant of grace, constancy. And the other thing is the definition of the people of God, the covenant people. That's where the idea comes from that the church, the covenant community, is a mixed community of saved and unsaved, elect and non-elect people, because that's how it was in Israel. So the Israelite people of the covenant, there's a constancy with that and the new covenant people associated with Christ's church. So both of these views, I think, fall short of the text of Jeremiah 31 when it's viewed and understood as it's situated in its own historical and scriptural context. And both fall short, as always our flawed understandings do, unless we're just completely ignorant and don't even understand what the issues are. But our flawed understandings always derive from wrong premises, a priori assumptions that we bring to the table, if you will, the lenses that we're wearing when we look at what the scripture is saying. And if we think we don't have presuppositions, we're kidding ourselves. The question isn't, do you have assumptions or presuppositions? The question is, what are they Where did they come from? Are they biblically defensible? Dispensationalism, again, as I said, holds to the a priori, meaning as a first principle. It's what's brought to the table. It's not something that itself is derived or exegeted out. It's it's an assumption that is brought to to the process Dispensationalism, one of its primary a priori premises is, again, this Israel church distinction. And behind that lies their hermeneutical principle of a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. If it says Israel, it means Israel. If it says David, it means David. If it says uh, Mount Zion, you know, all the nations coming and streaming to Mount Zion, it means all the nations are going to come and stream to Mount Zion. 
So uh, a fundamental, essential Israel church distinction. And therefore, the emphasis with this new covenant is on the fact of Jeremiah saying it's a covenant with Israel and Judah. That assumption is brought to bear. It says Israel and Judah, therefore it means them, therefore it doesn't mean the church. And there's a failure to do business with the the reason why Jeremiah says a new covenant with Israel and Judah. And we'll talk about that more next time. Covenant theology, its a priori premise is again this one grace covenant. And that misses the crucial determinative discontinuity that is at the center of Jeremiah's prophecy and that the writer to the Hebrews is trying to get at. And we'll talk about that next time. But again, he says, not like the covenant that I made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like that covenant. Does that mean there's no correspondence? No, it doesn't mean that. And we talked about that a lot last time in terms of the way the promises work together in the movement of these covenant structures and arrangements. And just as kind of a final exclamation point on that, um, I think in my interaction with Reformed people, the tendency is... what they're trying to emphasize is the continuity in God's saving arrangement. In other words, the, the, the thing that they're jealous for is that salvation has always been by grace through faith, not by works, not by law. And so this principle of salvation by grace through faith is continuous throughout the whole of salvation history. But there's a difference between acknowledging a principle according to which God works and assigning the title covenant to that and making that be the definition through which everything is, to which everything is subsumed. And that's all I'll say about that at this point. But again, in the end, I think both of these systems in the general sense fall short because they fail to do justice to the intent and the outcome, the goal of Christ's work. Remember where I began. What you believe about the new covenant will have a huge inseparable effect on what you believe about Christ's work. And I'm not going to go into it today. If you want to talk to me further, I'm happy to do that. But both of these to systems, in a sense, as they think about the new covenant, they fail at the point of, of, of a failure to fully deal with the, the work of Christ and what it entails and what has come out of that. In various ways and with various um, effects. So, that's my introduction, but what I wanted to do today is to say again Jeremiah 31 means what it means in its context. You know, there's that old real estate saying, all that matters is location, location, location. Well, in terms of the scripture, all that matters is context, context, context. 
And I've said before, there are basically three horizons of context. You have the immediate text itself. You have where it falls in the development of the salvation history. Not just the date and the author and who was king at that time, but where it falls in the developing salvation history. And then lastly, the biggest context is its canonical context or its contribution, what it means in the light of what God has accomplished in Jesus himself. And Jesus said that's to be our hermeneutic. All the scriptures testify of me. So we have to understand what Jeremiah 31 is saying. We can't read it through the Westminster Confession. We can't read it through the writings of John Walvert or Lewis Sperry Chafer or anybody else. We have to read it in its own context, its historical context, what's happening, what Jeremiah is saying, how it contributes to the, this, this history of Israel and the movement of the salvation history and then ultimately how it, how it fits in with what God has accomplished in the Messiah himself. So just a couple quick things about the historical background. Jeremiah, Jeremiah had nearly a, a five-decade, 50-year prophetic ministry to Judah. After Solomon, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, right? Judah in the south, consisting of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the other ten tribes forming the northern kingdom with its capital at Samaria. You now have the trajectory of two different sub-kingdoms. And eventually, Israel goes into its own Uh, It it undergoes its own conquest, desolation, exile at the hands of the Assyrians, who at that time were the, the dominant Middle Eastern power. Judah continues on. Judah is the remnant of David's kingdom. It has its capital at Jerusalem. Judah is the remnant. And Jeremiah was a prophet to Judah. But his prophecy, his prophetic content, the, you know, many prophecies, but his prophecy, capital P, if you will, spanned the whole period of Judah's demise. The whole uh, long extended period of its demise, its involvement with Egypt, uh, the three incursions of Babylon that finally culminated with the sacking of the city, the destruction of the city and the temple in 586 B.C. Jeremiah prophesied through all of that. He was saturated in that time of Judah's desolation. And again, for obvious reasons, his ministry focused, his prophetic ministry focused on that impending destruction. At the time that he started prophesying, it was only, the beginnings of it were only a few decades away. He was right on top of it. This was going to be the destruction of the remnant of David's kingdom. Recall again, God brought the whole of Israel together as the Abrahamic people under David. 
David brought together the 12 tribes of Israel and established Yahweh's throne and dwelling place on Mount Zion in Jerusalem in the temple built there. The kingdom divided. David was left with just two tribes, David's throne, the kingdom of of Judah. And that came about because of David's failure as Yahweh's king, specifically his failure with Bathsheba. But the issue with God was not adultery, but his unfaithfulness as son king. Rather than leading the Gentiles to know Yahweh, as was his Abrahamic mandate, right? He gave occasion to the Gentiles to blaspheme. That was God's sentence against David. And so he said, the sentence against you is the sword will never depart from your house. And it began with his immediate household. You read this in 1 Kings like 11 and 12. It began with his own children and Absalom's rebellion and the murder of Amnon, right? And Amnon that was killed. But his family became totally fractured to the point where Absalom tried to take the kingdom from him. And David's fleeing. It was a disaster. And then again, in the, in the reign of his grandson, Rehoboam, his national kingdom house, the sword came upon that. The sword severed his immediate household, then it went to the nation the 12 tribes under his kingdom, dividing it into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And now Jeremiah, through his own prophecy in chapter 22, says that the sword is going to extend to the last dimension of David's house. We're now centuries after that. We're four centuries after God passed that verdict through Nathan against David. But the last dimension of the sword Severing David's house is his dynastic house, Jeremiah 22. God cuts off David's royal dynasty in the reign of Jehoiakim, the second to the last king of Judah. No son of yours will ever sit on the throne of David or rule again in Israel. God cut off his dynastic house. All that remained at this point then, as Jeremiah is writing, of of God's judgment upon David and his kingdom is to bring the sword against the trappings of his reign and kingdom. Jerusalem and the temple. And that's what's coming. So Judah endured for about 135 years beyond Israel, but it was to experience the same fate. And really an even worse fate because it was more culpable. And I'm not going to take the time to read these contexts, but um, I would encourage you to go through the whole book of Jeremiah. It'll take you a while but go through the whole book of Jeremiah. But I'm telling you the setting in which Jeremiah lived and and prophesied. But he says, as did Ezekiel, that Israel's or Judah's culpability was greater because of her greater privilege, because of her greater standing. Judah had been preserved when Israel was made desolate. And Israel watched 
or Judah watched Yahweh pour out his wrath on Israel. He watched their destruction. He watched their exile. He watched their dissimulation. Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And God says, even though you saw all of that, you became worse than your sister in the north. This is Ezekiel 16 and 23. If Israel was a harlot, you're a worse harlot. And even watching the outcome of Israel's harlotry, you didn't learn anything from that. You became worse than her. So there was a worse, a more vicious, a more horrendous fate that came upon Judah. God had already warned about this before Israel even came into the land. Go back and read Deuteronomy 28. God said, when you get in the land and you rebel against me and you fall away, this is what's going to come upon you. And it's horrific what he says. I'm going to bring a nation against you. And it's going to be so brutal. You'll be eating your children. You'll be fighting over the afterbirth that comes after a birth because of the starvation and the sickness and the suffering that is coming on you. The woman who is too delicate to let the sole of her foot touch the ground will be fighting others to hang on to her own afterbirth to eat it. It's graphic, brutal language. And Jeremiah captures that same idea. He ties it to this idea of Topheth, the valley of Hinnom where you sacrifice your children to Moloch. It's going to be defiled. The slaughter is going to be so great, you won't even be able to bury the bodies. There won't be enough place to bury it. They'll just be thrown out. And again, you'll be eating your own children, drinking your own urine. Why would they do that? Because when Nebuchadnezzar finally came against Jerusalem, and I won't give you all the background of it, It's a whole process that took place from 605 to 586 when it was finally done. But he laid siege against Jerusalem and basically just cut off the city. They just camped there for two years. Nobody could go in. Nobody could go out. And he just waited. He waited until they were sick and starving and dying and powerless. And then he built the siege ramps against the walls and went in. Two years of a siege. This is at the heart. That that siege has actually begun in this section that we're going to be seeing with respect to the new covenant in Jeremiah. So that's the historical context. That's what was taking place. And Jeremiah lived through all of that. He wasn't a distant prophet talking about something that was going to happen way off in the future. Even Habakkuk, when God said, this is happening and you can't, there's nothing that you can do. Habakkuk saw it from a distance and he said, yet I'll trust the Lord. But he didn't go through it. Jeremiah went through it. Jeremiah went through that desolation of Jerusalem, even being taken to Egypt after it was all done. He lived through it. If you want to see how it affected him, read Lamentations. How desolate sits the city that was once full of life. Lamentations is just that. It's Jeremiah's lament. He wasn't killed, but he lived through that horrific destruction and desolation. 
Well, within the salvation history, then Judah's destruction would complete God's judgment of Abraham's household. What God promised in Deuteronomy 28 has now come to pass. Again, grounded in David's failure as Yahweh's anointed king. But the point of this prophecy of a new covenant is that that destruction and desolation, as horrific, as thoroughgoing, as exhaustive as it was, was not going to be the last word. The unfaithfulness, the covenant violation, the failure of the covenant household, the covenant son, didn't alter God's commitment, God's vow, God's oath that he covenanted to Abraham and later reaffirmed to Israel at Sinai and later reaffirmed in a regal way to David. God would yet fulfill his promises to Abraham. He would give life to the whole house of Israel. You see this in Ezekiel 37. Son of man, he saw the vision of the dry bones. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Can these dead bones live? Lord, you know. I will give life to the whole house of Israel. Take the two sticks, one for Judah, one for Ephraim. Israel, join them together. They will be reunited. He would give life to the whole house of Israel. He would raise up David's fallen tabernacle, Amos chapter 9. He would restore David's house and throne and kingdom, just as he pledged to David. Read Psalm 89. It's the same thing. Yahweh will keep faith with David. Yahweh will keep faith with David. Now, recognize Israel had to believe this. Uh, both the the remnant of of Israel that had already gone long since into exile and was scattered throughout the lands, but also the people of Judah themselves, the ones that survived, that were hauled off to Babylon. Um, Nebuchadnezzar left the very poorest, most powerless people in the land to still take care of fields and that sort of thing. But in the midst of all of that, God said, I will be faithful. David's house is gone, David's throne is gone, David's kingdom's gone. I've even cut off his regal line, I've cursed it. And yet, somehow, I will keep my word. And Israel was to believe him. He would do all of this, not for Israel's sake as such, but for the sake of his creation, for the sake of his oath to Abraham, that in your seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that restoration was to involve both houses of Israel. The reunification of the fractured covenant household because that was essential to a true restoration of David's house. David had brought the whole house of Israel together. The restoration of David's House and throne and kingdom meant the bringing together of the fractured houses of Israel. It doesn't mean every single Israelite. It doesn't mean every single uh, Judahite, Judean. But the two houses would be reconciled. And that restoration necessitated, as I said last time, covenant renewal. It necessitated covenant renewal, reconciliation, restoration of the covenant relationship between Yahweh and the Abrahamic offspring. 
What brought the fracturing of the kingdom in the first place? What brought the destruction of Israel? What brought the destruction of Judah? Covenant unfaithfulness. Israel had violated the covenant as a harlot. Therefore, any sort of reconciliation, both among the tribes of Israel, but certainly in relation to God, implied covenant renewal. And covenant renewal meant what? Dealing with the violation and the guilt that had fractured the covenant relationship in the first place. That's why you see Jeremiah talking about, I will be, God says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sin and iniquity I will remember no more. It's not so much about individual personal sins as it's about the covenant violation that had to be dealt with so that God could pull all of this back in, so that Israel could become Israel, so that the promise and oath to Abraham could be fulfilled in relation to God's creation. Yahweh needed to address the covenant violation and guilt that had fractured the covenant in order to bring this back together. And you see all of the prophets saying that. But again, the the goal of that was not individual forgiveness of person A, person B, person C, so that person A, B, or C can go to heaven, but that God's purposes for his creation could be realized, that he had bound up in Abraham and the Abrahamic seed. This restoration and renewal, again, had their goal in Israel becoming Israel indeed. The reason for reconciling the whole house of Israel, put, you know, can these dead bones live? These bones are the whole house of Israel. I will bring them to life. Why? So that Israel can fulfill its election on behalf of the world. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic people as the means of God's restorative work. And most importantly, and this should not be a surprise to any of us, Yahweh would accomplish that healing, restoring, forgiving, cleansing, gathering together, renewal of the covenant work in connection with the messianic figure that he had promised. This doesn't come up in this passage in Jeremiah 31, but it's surrounding it. God is going to raise up the branch of David. And in the branch of David, all of these things will be accomplished. Israel will become Israel indeed. There will be liberation, forgiveness, cleansing. Yahweh's sanctuary will be restored. Yahweh will return to his dwelling place. And when he renews Israel in connection with this ministry this priestly regal ministration of of the son of David, then he will begin to gather in all the families of the earth. This is the way we have to read the Gospels. This is the way we have to read all of the New Testament. Yahweh would accomplish all of this in the offspring promise to David. Again, you'll see this if you look at Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 11, 49 through 55. It's all throughout the prophets, Hosea 1 through 3. 
So that's the historical and the salvation historical context. And just very, very quickly, the structure of the prophecy itself. The prophecy is, is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. But it's set in a larger prophetic context, not just the whole book of Jeremiah. But chapter 30 through 33 is thematically one prophetic unity. Now, it actually consists of six prophetic words. Then the Lord said to Jeremiah, or then the Lord spoke. There's six of those, but I think three occasions when that takes place. Chapter 32 and chapter 33 are very closely aligned. They take place when Jeremiah is imprisoned early on when Nebuchadnezzar's laid siege to Jerusalem. In other words, the writing's on the wall. Babylon is there. And the city is, is under siege. And in chapter 32, Jeremiah is told through the Lord's leading to buy a field at Anathoth that be, belongs to his family. What are you talking about? The Babylonians are outside the walls of the city, right? What do you mean buy a field? Well, the point of that sign was that why would you buy a field if this is all to be destroyed and made desolate and go away forever? God is saying, it's going to be a while, but I'm going to once again restore these habitations. Buy this land as a sign to the people. Buy this field. That's 32. 33 then builds on that same idea with God elaborating on how I will do this restoration. If you can change my covenant with the seasons, with the day and the night, then I will be unfaithful to my covenant to David. You can go and read that. But those 32 and 33, are, are those prophecies come at, at the time when Jeremiah is imprisoned by Zedekiah in the palace while the Babylonians are laying siege to the city. The first, those are the last five words. The first word is chapter 30 and 31. It's, it's all both of those chapters. And we don't know the time when that happened. It's not clear. But that's the most elaborate and extensive uh, fleshing out of this theme of imminent destruction that will lead to eventual complete restoration in connection with the coming Davidite. So 30 through 33 are bound together by that theme. It's all going away, but this isn't the last word. If this isn't the last word. And another thing that's notable about the first word, chapter 30 and 31, of which this new covenant context is a part, is that God specifically instructed Jeremiah to write all of these words down in writing. And obviously, he wanted them preserved through the desolation and burning of the city. Write them down. Keep them safe. But I think the themes that they deal with of, again, this isn't the last word. Restoration is coming. God wanted the people who came out of this, the exiles, to hold on to that. And to keep it in front of their eyes. To keep it written in their hearts. That Yahweh would yet prove faithful. It was going to be six centuries before Messiah would come and accomplish what God promised. 
six centuries of Gentile domination, Gentile occupation, Gentile tyranny, no throne of David, no son of David on the throne. This is what Daniel's all about. World empire coming and going, but always subjugating the covenant people. Exile not ending. Oppression, slavery not ending. And God says, I will be faithful. I will be faithful. Keep this. Keep this. Don't lose this. Remember this. Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with Abraham's family, which in that context is Israel and Judah. I will be faithful. So anyway, saints, that's the framework that we've got to understand the new covenant within. This wasn't intended to be a history lesson or a Bible class or whatever. But if we don't understand the framework in which these things are presented, if we just read them through you know, a textbook or a confession or something, we're not going to understand what they're really getting at. We can't abstract Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant from Israel's history and from its role in God's purposes. It means what it means in that context. Doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything to us, but it means what it means in that context. It's historical salvation, historical situation, and those to whom it was given. And that framework shows and explains how this covenant involves both continuity and discontinuity. You can't say it has nothing to do with what went before. It has nothing to do with Sinai. It has nothing to do with the Abrahamic covenant. It has nothing to do with David. It has everything to do with them. But it also shows us where the discontinuity lies as well, how to understand that. And again, a way to think about that is what is the discontinuity between the Aaronic Levitical priesthood and Jesus priesthood. That gives us some insight into the discontinuity between the covenants associated with them. It's a new covenant. Even the Jewish uh, scribes who produced the Old Testament in Greek use that same term that the author of Hebrews uses, kainos, a new kind or quality or sort. Not polished up, not spruced up and cleaned up, kainos, a new sort, a new quality, something that has not previously been new. It's not merely a new administration of a former overarching covenant definition or idea, but at the same time, it embodies the full and everlasting realization of all of the covenant promises. It's the realization of the covenant relationship and purpose that God had disclosed to Abraham and that he had ratified with Israel at Sinai and that he had narrowed and ratified in a regal way with David. It has to be held together. And so we can't understand the new covenant as, oh, it's for the church or it's for the Jewish people. But we can't understand it as just a modified and a restored version of of Sinai either. It must be understood in terms of the Christ event. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And that's why he goes to such length to flesh out the Christ event, right? Because that's the way in which this covenant has to be understood. 
And it's in that way, I would argue, that both theological systems that we're familiar with fall short. They ultimately, in their own way, for their own reasons, fall short of the true nature, scope, effect, and goal of Jesus' person and work. And that's why we have to get that right if we're going to get this covenant right. And getting the covenant right will help us to get that right. They're, they're inextricable. Well, next time we'll, Lord willing, dive into the details. Um, but I encourage you, go back and at the very least, read chapters and, and not just have your eyes go across it, but spend some time in Jeremiah 30 through 33. But if possible, read the whole book, but read it within its historical context. Not just what years did Jeremiah live, but what reality was he part of? What was he speaking to? And in that way, I think you'll be more ready for for next time when we dive into the particulars. Uh, But for now, let's close for today. Father, I hope that this is familiar and not strange to most everyone who's gathered with us today. But if it is new, and to whatever extent it is new, I pray that you would give us courage and conviction to be truly Berean. All of us have presuppositions. All of us bring premises and assumptions to bear. When we consider anything, and it's not that premises are necessarily wrong, but we have to know where they came from. We have to understand uh, their significance and whether or not they're truly in accord with the scriptures. Father, make us be a Berean people, not for the sake of getting our doctrine right, but for the sake of owning and being transformed by the truth as it is in Jesus our Lord. Paul saw the privilege, the glory, of being a minister of the new covenant as a a priceless and unimaginable privilege and, and, and high calling. And I wonder whether it's that way for us. I wonder whether it's that way for us. Do we really understand what it is to be bound to our God in Christ by the power, the grace of the Spirit in an everlasting covenantal union to be the heirs of all that the prophets spoke of, all that they longed for. Peter himself spoke of these things. Paul spoke of these things. We are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are the ones in connection with whom all of the faithful who preceded us in the Old Testament They longed for that day when God would do what he promised to do. And now, because of the Messiah, they can be made complete together with us. What a privilege we have. What a glorious union. What a marvelous salvation. Father, don't let us be content to reduce it down to forgiveness and dotting I's and crossing T's and going to heaven when we die. 
Help us to see your glory in the face of Christ. The glory into which we are being transformed by the Spirit who is the Lord. May we be faithful stewards. And may we seek in all things to truly, truly grow up in Christ who is the head. Help us in these things and help us and give us an unction and an urgency to help one another. We grow up together into Christ. And I pray that we would be faithful even in that way as well. So meet us in our weakness. Teach us, instruct us, encourage us, give us all peace, all joy, all hope in believing. Amen.